I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 27th, 2015. Coming up, an interview with Professor Marie Banich from the University of Colorado here in Boulder. Dr. Banich uses cutting-edge methodologies, particularly structural and functional MRI, to examine the role of the prefrontal cortex, as well as other brain regions, in executive function. Today, she'll tell us about work that was recently funded by NIH to characterize how these systems change over the course of development. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Unintended pregnancies are a major health issue worldwide. Although oral contraceptives were developed decades ago for use in women, there are no male oral contraceptives. A group of researchers at Osaka University in Japan identified an enzyme necessary for sperm function that may allow the development of a male contraceptive. This enzyme, called calcineurin, initiates a cascade of events ultimately leading to the production of healthy sperm. Mice in which the gene for the enzyme was knocked out produced sperm which could not swim normally and thus couldn't fertilize an egg. Further, it's possible to use drugs, calcineurin inhibitors, to temporarily knock out the enzyme. In mouse experiments, these drugs resulted in male infertility within two weeks and fertility recovered one week after halting drug administration. Because this enzyme is also found in humans for the same purpose, its inhibition may be a strategy for developing reversible male contraceptives. This work was published in the journal Science last week. Alzheimer's disease manifests with memory loss and spatial disorientation. There is currently no cure. One of the reasons could be that interventions start too late when there is already irreversible damage to the brain. Developing a biomarker, some easy-to-measure indicator, could make intervention more effective. Alzheimer's pathology starts in a region of the cortex where spatial navigation is controlled. The cells that produce a map of the world, called grid cells, are impaired. A team of researchers from Germany used functional magnetic resonance imaging to generate images of navigation in human brains. They found that young adults with genetic, rich, uh, genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease had reductions in grid cell activity and altered navigational behavior in a virtual task. Their results hold promise for early detection of Alzheimer's disease, decades before potential disease onset. This work was published last week in the journal Science. You can explore touchscreen-mounted images of life on Earth from NASA's Earth Observatory for a special citizen scientist project all day, going today through November 29th at the Henderson Museum on the main CU campus at 1030 Broadway. Also on the CU campus, a special Halloween show at the Fisk Planetarium starts at midnight this Saturday. The Wizard of Oz meets Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, projected on the Planetarium Dome. Visit their website at fisk.colorado.edu for details. I just don't know what to do with myself. Don't 
know just what to do with myself. I'm so used to doing everything with you, planning everything for two, and now that we're through, I just don't. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Here with me in the studio today is Dr. Marie Banish, director of the Institute of Cognitive Science at CU Boulder. Her lab studies changes during adolescence in the brain with regards to neural systems that allow control of behavior, so-called executive function. She also studies two other brain systems, those that are important for evaluating risk and reward, and those that process emotional information. Imbalances between the executive system and these other systems can result in substance abuse, depression, or anxiety. Thanks for joining us today, Marie, and welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Beth. Well, let's start off by talking a little bit about just what executive function is and its significance in adolescence. Surely. Uh, Executive function is those higher set of skills that we often think of as making us an adult the ability to plan our behavior, to prioritize what we're going to do, to make judgment calls, to deal with novel circumstances. Uh, And these skills are undergoing very large amount of growth during adolescence. Uh, We believe that a lot of this is due to changes in the brain during adolescence, that a particular portion of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, essentially, that part of the brain that's sitting right above your eyes uh, is uh, really undergoing a large developmental change and that those developmental changes aid in the ability to acquire or to for these abilities to mature. And so can you give us some examples of this executive function maybe in younger adolescents and then as they mature how it would change? Surely. Um, So What you see is uh, basically changes in a variety of areas. So one of them is really thinking about the future in general, being able to plan both in a step-by-step manner um, and also to think about what's the consequences of what I'm doing now for the future. So one of the interesting things about adolescence is, oh, about the time of age 16 or so, I would say the basic mental faculties of a teenager are in place. Um, they can remember numbers as well as adults. They can spit back facts, things of, of that nature. But what they have trouble with is taking information and synthesizing it to realize the long-term consequences. So often parents feel, gee, how can adolescents be so smart and so dumb (laughs) at the same time? So for example, in some of the work we've done, we've shown that adolescents, if they have to do a planning task, can get to the same end point as an adult, and sometimes even as quickly. But what they do is they take a more haphazard path to get to that end point. So in some sense, they can sometimes fool their parents because they get to the end point, but the process behind it isn't as mature as you would see in an adult. I see. Now, when you say process, is this something that you can actually visualize through your use with MRIs? 
So, uh, for some of these abilities, yes, we can. That particular study I just talked about was really watching the pattern of, of their behavior. But MRI's magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging has really opened scientists' eyes to what a, a hugely uh, variable and important time adolescence is. So way back, the, the most thinking was that the brain was mainly developed by age 16. Uh, if we looked at it, the size of the brain reaches about adult levels in mid-adolescence. So scientists thought, oh, most of the developmental process is over. But magnetic resonance imaging allows us to look both at brain anatomy, that is the structure of the brain, and also brain function. What areas of the brain become active as people do different tasks? And with the emergence of that technology, uh, it became very clear to scientists that what happens is there's a ton going on in adolescence that we really had overlooked or had, had not realized. Those changes um, on an anatomical level are that the brain is going through what's called a pruning process. Um, so you can think of neurons or nerve cells um, kind of like as bushes, okay? And they all have branches. Uh, what happens is in childhood, there are tons of branches so that branches of one neuron can touch and connect with another. But during adolescence, there's a sculpting process where some of those connections die out and others get stronger, which allows us to go to our adult status. Um, so what we see in addition to that sculpting process, which is going on particularly in the prefrontal cortex, is also that you can think of the prefrontal cortex as the executive. There are also changes that allow that region of the brain to talk more efficiently with the rest of the brain. So you may have heard about white matter, and those are essentially long connective cables in the brain. You can think of them as the superhighways. So not only are these prefrontal areas being sculpted, especially by the environment, but in addition, their ability to communicate with the rest of the brain efficiently, to coordinate processing, to pull all the disparate pieces of information together to make a judgment are being uh, improved. So this is exactly what you can measure with your MRI studies is that transmission speed on the superhighways. We don't look at the transmission speed directly. You would do that with an EEG. What we do look at is how intact those cables are. How insulated are they? The bigger the insulation, the faster the speed. I see. So in order for us to get a good grasp on what you're doing with that MRI, can you give us the MRI for dummies? Uh, maybe 25 <laughs> words or less. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, essentially, MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging. Okay. And what uh, the reason why we can see activity in the brain is because, as you probably know, hemoglobin binds iron. That's why you're told to eat spinach and things of that nature. And it turns out that areas of the brain that are very active need a lot of oxygen. Okay. Um, and there's a difference in oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin in terms of their magnetic symbol signal and we pick that up with the MRI so that the fact that hemoglobin binds to iron 
allows us to figure out which areas of the brain are working really, really hard right now and which areas of the brain are kind of taking a break. I see. So you are collecting these images from adolescents doing tasks under a variety of different conditions or, or questions, perhaps, that you ask them. And then you can come up with assessments that allow you to um, infer what's going on in different regions of their brain. Uh, exactly. So... One of the things we look at, for example, is we're interested in how well adolescents can ignore emotionally distracting information. One of the things that uh, is very important about the adolescent uh, developmental period is that we see an overactivity, as you mentioned earlier, in areas processing emotion or rewarding materials, things of that nature. And these executive or cognitive control regions in the prefrontal cortex aren't yet developed. So with MRI, what we can do is we can actually see how much does their amygdala, which processes emotional salience, how active does that become when they have some emotional information that we ask them to ignore? How active are those prefrontal regions? And are they even talking to each other? Um, so, so we can. It gives us a, a very detailed picture of the pattern of activity across the brain. I see. And so, have you seen that? For instance, um, when you look at a 13-year-old versus a 17-year-old, that they become better at ignoring or at pigeonholing distracting emotional information. Yes, that has been shown by myself and others. One of the studies uh, we did in the lab was to show not only could we detect those changes across age in activation of prefrontal cortex when adolescents were supposed to ignore information, but it actually also predicted their self-reported behavior. So not just in the lab, but in the real world. Um, did they actually self-report that they planned ahead? Were they able to resist peer pressure, things of, of that nature? So we have evidence that these markers that we're picking up in brain activity really do relate to everyday life. You are listening to Professor Marie Banish, director of the Institute of Cognitive Science at CU Boulder. She's describing her work on cognitive development in adolescence and how drugs can disrupt that. So let's move on and talk about drugs and other uh, interesting influences that may impair or affect the development of adolescent brains. How exactly do you get at the role of drugs in the adolescence? Because I imagine you can't just bring them into the lab and give them a hit of pot or something like that. No, we definitely can't do that. <laughs> Even though it's legal in Colorado <laughs> these days, they're still not 18. Yes, that's true. Um, fortunately, CU Boulder has been selected to be one of the sites of a large-scale national study that's going to be conducted over the next 10 years uh, to try to really answer this question of what are the effects of drugs on the adolescent uh, brain. We here at CU Boulder are going to be asking this question in a particular manner uh, by taking advantage of our Institute for Behavioral Genetics that has a long history, internationally known history, of doing research on twins. Um, so what we want to do uh, in the study here is essentially to follow 
twin pairs from about age 9 or 10 before children start to use substances. The um, national survey suggests only 1% of children <clears throat> use studies by that age. So the idea is to essentially figure out how much of an influence genetics has versus the environment. So work that we've done here and with our colleagues down in Denver has clearly shown that the brains of adolescents who are heavy substance abusers look different than those individuals, those adolescents who don't use substances. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? How do they look different? It's, I imagine that you're seeing with MRI different activities in different brain regions. And do you see anatomical differences as well? Yes, we do. We see both reduced activity in these cognitive control areas, um, and we also see reduced gray matter. So there is actually less brain volume. But we also know uh, from studies at the Institute for Behavioral Genetics and elsewhere that there is a genetic propensity to substance use that it runs in families. So the question is, if we could have seen the brains of these individuals before they started using drugs, would they have looked different at the very beginning from the get-go? And that's essentially what we want to look at in this study. So let's say that the major influences are genetic. Then what we should see is that 10 years from now, the Brains of identical twins who share 100% of their genes should look very much the same. The brains of fraternal twins who only share 50% of their genes should look somewhat similar. And if we look at two unrelated individuals, their brains should look dissimilar. That's assuming that genetics is the main contributor. On the other hand, if it's the environment and how much how many drugs you've used and how often, then what we should see is that the brains of heavy drug users should all look alike and the brains of non-drug users should all look alike and we won't be able to tell who was related to whom genetically. Now probably what will happen is our results will be somewhere in between, that it will be a combination of both genetics and the environment. But it's important to know the relative proportions because it has potential impact for public policy. If we find that genes or genetic background uh, plays a much larger role, then you might think about drug training programs that are really targeted to those individuals who are most at risk. Uh, because if you tell teenagers, oh, if you have one drink, your brain's going to be ruined, and that doesn't happen, you actually you lose credibility with them, right? Sure. So, so sure. we, we want to keep that in mind. Now, let's say, on the other hand, it turns out that it's really how many drugs you used. Uh, then it, you, that suggests different type of, of, of training and, uh, to, to, to teenagers. Then what you have to do is say, uh, you know, you're not protected. Just because somebody, there's no one in your family that has a substance abuse problem doesn't really mean that much. What's important is how many drugs you've you've taken that you know that that that's going to determine your adulthood now ideally you'd have different 
circumstances in these different types of twin pairs so that in some sets of identical twins, let's say, one would be a heavy drug user or a, a drug user and one would not, um, and similarly in fraternal twins. And is that really the case or is do you see that identicals are more more likely to copy each other in behavior and so it, it'll be more difficult to tease that apart, the genetics and the environment? Um, Identical twins are more likely to copy behavior, but indeed we see differences, for example, in levels of stress and things of that nature. So we do expect to find identical twins who are discordant for drug use. Um, the statistics are a little bit complicated, but you actually don't require, as long as you have both the identical twins and the uh, fraternal twins, um, you can still, there's statistical techniques that will allow you to answer this question even if you don't just have twins who are discordant for drug, identical twins who are discordant for drug use. And you must have a pretty good sample size to be able to apply these statistics. Uh, yes. Actually, we are one of, CU Boulder is one of four sites across the country that will be collecting data on twins. And the idea is to basically give us a large enough sample to be able to make good statistical inferences from the data. Well, that's fantastic. And this is a 10-year longitudinal study that Dr. Banish is describing. So it'll be going on for a long time, collecting lots of very cool data. And so can you tell us about what some of the drugs are besides alcohol that you'll be looking at? Uh, we will be looking at basically getting information on whatever the adolescents are, are using. Uh, one of the things that's a little bit different about adolescents than adults is they don't tend to be, and I'll put this in quotes, drug specialists. Okay? Uh, so they will drink alcohol, use marijuana, whatever the latest thing is uh, out there. Um, and so we'll be getting information on all the variety of drugs that they're using, including nicotine and in, in, uh, cigarettes. One of the other things we will be attempting to do with this study is also, since it's a longitudinal study, to try to figure out if there are particular developmental time periods where it's specifically deleterious to use drugs. Um, so are you more vulnerable at age 13 and 14 as compared to 16 and 17? Or does that vulnerability last for the entire adolescent period? Thank you. That was Dr. Marie Banich, director of the Institute of Cognitive Science at CU Boulder, describing her work examining the development of brain systems during adolescence and the implications for mental health disorders that began to arise at that time. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Linda Ronstadt. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, 
I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bennett. 